0: Christina Borgeson, few people, in my opinion, have gotten closer to the truth about what really happened on 9-11 than my guest today, particularly when it comes to what happened at the Pentagon. And that's surprising given her professional background. Barbara Honegger had a distinguished career in government having served in a number of high-level government positions, including as White House policy analyst and special assistant to the president during the Reagan administration and director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice. But since 9-11, she's been applying her world-class research and analysis skills to go up against the government to expose its official story about 9-11 as a fraud and to dig out the truth about what really happened. A lot of people are digging for the truth. Most focus on one aspect or another, but Barbara Honegger has arguably uncovered more pieces of the puzzle than virtually anyone, particularly, again, when it comes to the Pentagon, what happened there, again, with the exception of the culprits themselves, few are closer to the truth than Honegger. If you wanna see how she puts the pieces of the puzzle together, you must watch her extraordinary presentation titled, Beyond the Smoke Curtain. So today we're gonna be talking to Barbara about her unparalleled work.
1: Welcome Barbara.
0: Hi,
1: Christina. And if I could just correct one thing in the intro, that's uh, behind the smoke curtain which people would have to know to find it on youtube i'm sorry i'm sorry i i uh, i it, i wrote it here but that's not what
0: i said anyway i'm so happy to have you on and let's just dig right in barbara right. Okay. uh what is it that you think we should discuss first should we talk about the hijackers that weren't or you know the Pentagon, where do you want to start?
1: Well, I think what, um, you know, we, we discussed the possibilities before the show. And uh, I'd like to start, and then I'll get into the big picture, okay. uh, with uh, kind of bouncing off of your interviews with uh, Rosini and- Mark uh, Rossini, the FBI
0: uh, liaison right. at Alex Station that was uh, focusing on bin Laden. Right, and also
1: the, right, and also your interview with the, um, the authors of the book, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, John Duffy and Ray Nolaschewski, I'm probably mispronouncing that. No, Um, no, I thought I, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I thought I would just start because you'd actually asked me to, um, to comment on what they said and yes. that will get us into the big picture. I've, I'll actually get into the big picture very quickly, if that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> okay, all right. So um, I'm gonna start with a big picture actually that involves uh, what they said. So um, the big picture context for this interview is that all of these people, former FBI agent, Rossini, and the authors of The Watchdogs Didn't Bark who say that the crux, they believe that the crux of why the 9-11 attacks weren't prevented was this at the CIA's ALEC station uh, blocking the FBI from knowing about future alleged hijackers Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar being in the United States before 9-11. And this includes the 9-11 commission report which focused on this very thing. All of these sources Assume that the official story—that the hijackers, any hijackers, were on any of the 9/11 planes—they assume it's true, and they focus on just two of those alleged 19 hijackers, who are central to the 28 pages, and therefore also to the huge 9/11 victims' family member lawsuit by Motley Rice. Call the 28
0: pages being the, the uh, those pages that the government withheld that were all about uh saudi involvement correct in, in or possible saudi involvement in 9
1: 11. right Funding, etc
0: right. okay and they
1: focus on just two most people don't know this they think oh the 28 pages in the 9 11 victims family members lawsuit is about all of those 15 alleged saudi uh, Muslim men hijackers no it's just about two of them and their names were al Hazmi and Al-Midar. And both of them, according to the official story of 9-11 um, that is pushed or assumed by FBI former FBI agent Rosini and the authors of the book, The Watchdog Didn't Bark and the 9-11 Commission and everybody else. The assumption is that the official story is true of what happened at the Pentagon. That Al-Hazmi and Al-Bidar were on the Pentagon plane and that, that Pentagon plane was flight 77 and that it hit the building. But everything about my research, including um, chapters published in Jim Mars's books on 9-11 called The um, 9-11 Terror Conspiracy and his second edition of that called The 9-11 Terror Terror Conspiracy Revisited, but especially in my uh, video documentary, which is on YouTube called Behind the Smoke Curtain, What Happened at the Pentagon and What Didn't and Why It Matters that has over 250 views on YouTube. These all marshal the compelling multiple lines of converging evidence that the official story about the Pentagon, that five hijackers were on Flight 77 that hit the building, including these two very central to Rosini and the other story, Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar is simply false. That it wasn't Flight 77 that was the plane that approached the Pentagon, that it had been swapped for another plane, Uh, just like the WTC planes had been, and further, that there is literally no evidence in the public domain that any of the alleged 19 hijackers got on or were on any of the original planes to begin with. So uh, that's the big picture. And then I'd like to go into some of the details. Okay, let's do it. Go ahead. Okay. I just have a few notes here and I'm going to go over them. And I know that they're going to elicit lots of questions from you, I I would expect. So, um, Rosini, the former FBI agent, and Richard Clark, who has been called the czar, the the counterterrorism czar in the Bush-Cheney White House National Security Council, and the authors of the book, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, they all claim that the CIA did not tell the FBI about just those two hijackers, Al-Hazbi and Al-Midar, later allegedly on just one of the planes, the Pentagon plane, being in the US before the attacks until mid to late August of 2001. But by doing so, Rosini especially should know better. And I believe he does know a lot more and knows better. They're all setting up the inference which is the real disinformation according to all of my research findings. And that inference is that the FBI didn't know at all from any source, let alone the CIA's Alex station about the future alleged hijackers being in the US before the attacks. But we know this is simply false. How do we know that? How do we know that? I'm gonna give you just the tip of the iceberg that's in my research. First off, Rosini and John O'Neill, who was very famous, uh, believed and claimed to have died in the towers, one of the twin towers on 9-11 or right outside them. So Rosini and his boss at the FBI, the famous um, uh, FBI special agent who was in charge of tracking Osama bin Laden and his associates. Rosini and John O'Neill themselves, number one, Surveiled, in my opinion, and I have published this in Jim Mars's book, The Terror Conspiracy Revisited, that the, they surveilled the literal final 9-11 planning meeting that involved Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of 9-11, Mohammed Ada Bin Al-Shib, the alleged coordinator of the attacks, etc., in Tarragona, Spain in July of 2001, and therefore knew all of the details about the coming attacks. That after all was the final 9-11 planning meeting by the actual alleged future masterminds and lead hijacker. When you say they surveilled,
0: do you think they heard them or they were listening in or they were,
1: what do you mean by that? Right, well, uh, you yourself before this uh, show, sent me uh, an email uh, that I believe is based upon the the 9-11 history timeline um, on all of the overlap of John O'Neill and at part of that time, Rosini, being in Spain at the same time and in one case in the same hotel, although at a slightly different time just before this final 9-11 planning meeting with these uh, alleged masterminds and lead hijacker and chief coordinator of the 9-11 attacks. There's only one reason for that kind of a so-called coincidence, which it can't possibly be in my opinion, and that is that John O'Neill and Rosini were there because they had advanced intelligence. It was going to happen where it was going to happen and that there were bugs being placed in the hotel rooms or wherever they were holding the meeting in that hotel. And um, there's actually, there have actually been claims that I believe are in my published, um, my published uh, uh, appendix to Jim Mars's book. And that appendix is called the Pentagon attack papers. Uh, that this was either through direct placing of the bugs by O'Neill and or Rosini um, and or through uh, surveillance by taps by the Spanish or German intelligence. So these are, it is an inference of course, that John O'Neill and Rossini knew every single detail from their own taps or through the uh, information from the taps of the Spanish and or German intelligence uh, long before 9 11 in July, mid July of, of 2001. So that's number one. That's a big one. Number two, we know that the able danger, uh, DOD, Defense Intelligence Agency, DNI, Defense and in- DIA, um, the Able Danger uh, the Able Danger Group was tracking the so-called future hijackers uh, inside the U.S. beginning in January of 2000. Now, now how- tell my audience who the Able,
0: what the Able Danger Group is, because you know some people may have forgotten by now.
1: Okay. Well, in a nutshell, um, we learned after 9/11 that. Um, There was a a rather large uh, surveillance organization inside the special operations branches of the different uh, military uh, branches of our government uh, that was tracking the the alleged future hijackers inside the United States. And by the way, more than just Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi, beginning in January of 2000. Now that's a long time before July of two thousand and eleven, right? Okay. You mean so, September
0: 11th?
1: No, no, I meant uh, July two thousand and eleven, oh. when Rosini and what I just mentioned, when uh, Rosini and um, and uh, John O'Neill were in Spain. Oh, okay, was- I get it. I'm oh. sorry.
0: Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: As the as the alleged mastermind and lead hijacker and chief. Coordinator, and that was in July of 2001. So we know that Able Danger was tracking uh, the, all of the hijackers who were in the United States beginning as early as January, 2000. And of course, Al-Hazbi and Al-Midar, we understand were the first ones to enter the United States uh, in mid-July, uh, excuse me, mid-January of 2000. So Able Danger out of the Defense Department And they claim that this was just using open source, that this was just a kind of, um, I think they called it a data mining operation. Uh, I I know that it was more than that. And now I'm going to tell you um, the evidence as to why we know that. So uh, I have, and the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry has, uh, a sworn jurid affidavit by uh, an eyewitness to what I'm about to tell you. His name is Francis Gregory Ford, known as Greg Ford for short, that's what he calls himself uh, in his many radio shows, Greg Ford. And Greg Ford um, was one of between 30 and 35 military and Department of Justice. And remember that the FBI is a sub-agency of the Department of Justice. In July of 2014, months before 9-11, and this is in Greg Ford's sworn jurat affidavit that we have physically I have his original, actually, Um, he says in the affidavit that 14 months before 9-11 in July of 2000 that he and all of these other trainees, military and Department of Justice trainees, were at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which is the Army's training center uh, in Arizona, that they were at a a class, uh, a a counterintelligence uh, training class course, when to their surprise on their final day or close to their final day of the class of the training that uh, the head of Fort Huachuca came into the class and introduced three members of the Able Danger uh, surveillance group. Uh, And amongst the three was none other than the lead of that group. And he's very well known. His name is Tony Schaefer. His full name is Anthony Schaefer. that the, uh, the head of Fort Huachuca uh, told them, told the class, that he had just been briefed by Tony Schaefer and the other two members of the Able Danger surveillance group out of DOD. And that he then gave the uh, summary of what he had just been told by Tony Schaefer and the other Able Danger operatives and Um, amongst what he was told, and this is in his sworn affidavit, is that at that time, 14 months before 9-11, that Able Danger was already actively tracking what would become, and I'm adding that, what would become at least two of the four alleged hijacker cells on 9-11, of the 19 hijackers, that they were already tracking them in the United States, they knew that they had already done flight training in Florida, and that at the time of the July 2000 briefing there at Fort Huachuca, that they were, as he was speaking, not very many miles away, being trained also in flight training at Marana Air Base, Pinnell Airfield, not far away in Arizona. And after this briefing, oh, I should add, In his sworn juror affidavit, Greg Ford states also that the class was told that the able danger briefers said that sometime in the next 18 months, now 9-11 happened about 14 months later, but that sometime in the next 18 months from July 2000, that these cells that these that he called them terrorist operators the able danger people called them terrorist operators, then in the United States, would attack the World Trade Center with hijacked commercial airliners and would attack a select target or targets in Washington DC with a hijacked airliner, commercial airliner. Not that it might happen, not that they inferred it would happen, but that it would happen. And that when it did happen, sometime in the next 18 months, that everyone in this class had to be ready. They had to have their wills written. They had to have everything together with their families and their loved ones, because they will be uh, activated and called to the Middle East to fight the organization behind these uh, already tracked uh, terrorist operatives. Now, this is a sworn jurid affidavit. Now, the critical thing for Rosini's claim which is false or his Can I ask
0: you something before we get into Rossini? Yeah. (laughs) Did you ask Ford if anybody raised their hand and said, why, if we're tracking these people, are we going to let them do this?
1: So glad you asked, because that's in his sworn jurid affidavit. And in his sworn affidavit, the very next thing that he relates under oath, sworn, before a notary public holding up his hand and swearing it under oath to the notary public is that after this summary by the head of Fort Huachuca with the three able danger operatives standing next to him including Tony Schaefer, that the class, the trainees were told, after the trainees were told about this, that a trainee in the class from the Department of Justice office in Sacramento, California, whom Greg Ford knows. I know her name, he doesn't want it made public until it's before some kind of an official legal proceeding, grand jury, etc. but I know her name. That she raised her hand, she was called on, and she said that she wanted to know because Able Danger was a DOD, a Pentagon uh, agency, sub-agency and the CIA was not allowed to do operations inside the United States, that only the DOJ-FBI was, and therefore had ABLE Danger already briefed the FBI about all this, to which Tony Schaefer or one of the other ABLE Danger, he doesn't say which, one of the three ABLE Danger operatives said, yes, we have already, and that was in July 2000, 14 months before 9-11, yes, we, Able Danger, have already briefed the CIA, the NSA, and the FBI. Now that's just number two as to how the FBI already knew all of this. Also, from my Pentagon attack papers, uh, which is published in Jim Mars's books, The Terror Conspiracy and The Terror Conspiracy Revisited, it's the appendix in the back of both of those books. So in my Pentagon attack papers, which is published and has been for years, I also detail, and by the way, this is from Newsweek magazine when I first learned of it and then followed it up, um, that the National Security Agency, NSA, before 9-11 was itself surveilling, quote, up to 20, unquote, of the alleged future 9-11 hijackers, but initially did it without a FISA warrant. And that when they finally put in a warrant to the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, that they were then ordered by Judge Lambert, who is then the presiding judge of the FISA court, to end the surveillance. Now, I don't know precisely when, in the lead up to 9 11, they were ordered to end the surveillance, but I'm certain they never ended the surveillance. That is my inference, but I would put 99.9% probability upon it, okay? So, um, now, those are just three of the main reasons for knowing and believing, uh, besides all the evidence that's in my documentary on YouTube called Behind the Smoke Curtain, that the this idea, this idea That is in the 9-11 commission report that's pushed by former FBI agent Rossini. That is the main crux of the book, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark by John Duffy and Ray Novakoski, which is also pushed by Richard Clark himself, who was the chief counterterrorism czar inside the White House, the Bush Cheney White House before, during and after 9-11, that none of that is true. Now, the question is, Do they know it isn't true? I believe they do. So that's what I have for that. That is
0: mind blowing. And I still wonder if somebody said, why are we doing this? To the Ask the Able Danger Guys, why are we doing this? Why are we attacking ourselves? What's the purpose?
1: You know, that might've happened. That would be a follow-up question to Greg Ford. And I hope you ask him when you interview him. And I hope you do.
0: Okay. I mean, so let's, let's talk about behind the smoke curtain. I've never seen a presentation that it's a two hour, over two hours. And I was just glued to it because the logic and the, you know, the backup information that you provide as you just go through this thing, like a train, And all of a sudden you realize that a lot of this stuff was done and said in plain sight. Right. So let's, let's get into that. Let's get into that.
1: Okay, do you have a specific question or would you like well, I, I just, you
0: started with the basis of it, which was the project for a new American century that laid it out we needed a new we need a new Pearl Harbor. You know, and and uh, what was interesting to me in that part of the presentation was how you said. In I don't know if it was the beginning or middle or whatever. When you said that you could not have had a war, you could not have had have had a war on terrorism if they had just only attacked the World Trade Center. Right, they had to attack a military or a government, uh, you know, structure. It had to be an
1: iconic military facility like the original Pearl Harbor to get a new Pearl Harbor. And that iconic military facility on 9-11 was the Pentagon.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. For which I worked. Gosh, doesn't that just, I don't
1: know. How do you? And by the way, I, I, I'd like to go on record here that when I say I work for the Pentagon, for the Department of Defense, it was not many people assume um, who have heard my story uh, that that was at the Pentagon physically. No, it was at the Naval Postgraduate School uh, here in Monterey, California, which is where I still live on the Monterey Peninsula in the West Coast, you know, mid California West Coast. Um, it was at the Naval Postgraduate School, and it's also known as NPS. And NPS is the I was the senior uh, military affairs journalist there for uh, 16 years Um, before 9/11, 9/11, and 11 years after, uh, 10 years after 9/11, when I retired. And um, I retired in good stead, by the way, with all kinds of rewards and tenure pins and all that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But uh, what what people um, what people should know uh, is that the Naval Postgraduate School where I worked all that time as the senior military affairs journalist uh, is DOD's, it's called by DOD itself, its official title uh, is the um, the premier science technology and national security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. So to be the senior military affairs journalist there, I had access to every single high level person you can imagine. Um, from General Ralph Aberhart, whom I interviewed, to the Chief of Naval Operations, uh, to excuse me, to the Chief of Naval Intelligence, whom I interviewed, and the Secretary of Defense, and on and on and on, including um, the the Acting Assistant Secretary of Special Operations on 9-11, Robert Andrews. I interviewed all these people at the Naval Postgraduate School after 9-11, and to a person, to a person, they told me what happened and what didn't. And that's what's in behind the smoke curtain. It's from these people who were there and running the place, but not Rumsfeld, they didn't interview him, on 9-11 itself. Now, you should also know that to my astonishment and the surprise of everyone who knows about my story, I was not only not fired for going public on everything I'm telling you from day one, here in the Monterey Peninsula on radio, on television, in newspaper interviews, online, at 9-11 conferences where I spoke. This was all, that is? all public. And not only was I not fired, I was protected and people need to understand why I was protected. This is my inference, but I believe I was protected because when you see behind the smoke curtain on YouTube, you will see that the Pentagon itself put out immediately after the attacks, I believe it was the next day or maybe later that night on 9-11 or on September 12th of 2001, the Pentagon itself, and it says at the bottom, From Navy sources, I worked for the Navy at the Naval Postgraduate School. Right after 9 11, the Navy put out that the Navy's Naval Intelligence Center, the Naval Command Center, and within it, the Naval Command, the Naval Intelligence Center within the Naval Command Center inside the Pentagon, three wings in, was specifically targeted to be taken out. And my behind the smoke curtain shows gives all the evidence that it was by pre-placed explosives inside the building that took out the Naval Command Center, and in particular were targeted on the Naval Intelligence Center inside the Naval Command Center. And I also interviewed General Hathaway, who came to the Naval Postgraduate School like everybody else does, because they wanted golf there. They want to uh, use taxpayers' dollars to use military planes to fly out to California, get away from the Pentagon, especially in the summer, come out and play golf. But in order to do that, they had to give the Secretary of the Navy's guest lecture at the Naval Postgraduate School. And I was always assigned as the senior military affairs journalist to interview them. So one of the people I interviewed over all those years that I was there in that position after 9, before, during, and after 9-11 was General Hathaway who was in charge of the Naval Command Center's uh, Naval Intelligence Center investigation on 9-11 when it was taken out by pre-placed planet explosives. And guess what? Guess what they were investigating, he told me. They were investigating the USS Cole attack, and in particular, the information that had been discovered by the tapping of the Al-Hadda telephone switchboard of Al-Qaeda Based upon which the CIA alleges and Rosini claims that the CIA, and therefore he himself, who is at the CIA's Alex station, first learned they claim of the um, Al Hazmi and Al Midar having visas to come to the United States, which they then did, which is the crux of everything that Rosini is talking about, that the 9-11 Commission report talked about, and that the authors of the watchdogs that didn't bark focus on. That's what they were investigating. The Naval Command Center, Naval Intelligence Office was taken out by pre-placed bombs inside the building. Now, how, they, what's the evidence for the pre-placed bombs? I just told you. Well, OK. Uh, number one, the the information I just gave you was from my interview with General Hathaway at the Naval Postgraduate School, which I detail, which I go into in Behind the Smoke Curtain. And of course, the and evidence- he said, he, he said to you there were pre, pre-placed bombs. No, no. Okay. he told, well, what he told me is that, okay, Behind the Smoke Curtain gives the evidence. The evidence is a combination of the fact that the Navy right after the attacks put out the information that the Naval Command Center was attacked, that it was specifically targeted. They even put out a graphic, which is in behind the smoke curtain, showing that it was the Intel cell, which was uh, this uh, area eight within the Naval Command Center, three rings in, two to three rings in from the outside wall which could not have been penetrated by a plane, even if a plane hit the building and got inside. So that's number one. Number two, he told me what they were investigating, which is exactly the alleged source of the information about Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar coming into the United States because they learned that because of the surveillance of Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar and their relationship with Al-Nasiri and others who were masterminds allegedly of the USS Cole attack. They were investigating all of that when that part of the Pentagon in the Naval Command Center, Naval Intelligence Cell was taken out by explosives. I also go into uh, the the evidence in behind the smoke curtain with actual quotes from from the, um, uh, the first responders who went into the area of the Naval Command Center, Naval Intelligence Cell, and called it a, quote, bombed out area, unquote. And I could go on and on. It's well, all, in, the, all in behind the there smoke There were people who were talking about it smelling of cordite. Well, that was in general about the whole Pentagon. And that's also in behind the smoke curtain the, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest ranking active duty military officer in our country, um, on nine, right after, well, actually on 9 11. And then he published it in his memoirs um, after 9 11, of course. But he himself, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that as soon as he got to the Pentagon on 9-11, there was an overwhelming smell of cordite. And there are many witnesses to the smell of cordite, including critical Pentagon witness, April Gallup, and many others, and those are also listed in my documentary on YouTube, Behind the Smoke Curtain. But cordite was not specifically mentioned uh, in the interview that I did. Uh, with general cordite acid. being
0: associated with explosives, by the way.
1: Oh, absolutely! It's it's a kind of a, a newer version of gun of, of gunpowder.
0: Right. Um,
1: and it has, doesn't smell anything like jet fuel, burning jet fuel, unburning jet fuel, uh, a, a, a fireball from jet fuel. It's a completely different smell. Um, but do I know that cordite was the actual explosive that was used in the naval command center, naval intelligence cell? No, I don't. So, okay, so let's talk about other things that um,
0: other witnesses said about um, the Pentagon. One of the things was uh, talking about the airplane debris or the alleged airplane debris and how, you know, uh, Flight 77 that allegedly hit the Pentagon was uh, an American Airlines uh, 7. 47 so it would have been you would have seen a lot of polished aluminum you know that bright shiny silver with the stripes okay if if indeed that plane had hit instead what did that debris look like
1: well first off the official story just a slight correction there um is that it that flight 77 was a 757, oh, as 757. Of, yeah, as, okay. as opposed to a 747. That's 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 minor, but it is important because there presumably would be a slight difference in size or whatever. Yeah, bigger between, plane. Yeah, between the debris pieces of yeah. either one. Um, okay, so I I think the most important thing for people to know, and again, please watch behind the smoke curtain on YouTube, and you will see all of this for yourself. Okay, um, but. The, the most important thing for people to know um, is the evidence for, uh, first off, there is, there is plane wreckage at the Pentagon, but it is not where the official story says Flight 77 hit, which was at column 14 in uh, wedge one on the west wall, just off, on and off the west wall. There, there isn't plane debris there. The plane debris, and there is some, not nearly enough for a 757, but there is plain debris about 120 to 150 feet further to the left or north along the wall at and near and just beyond the heliport. And in behind the smoke curtain, you will see that the heliport was pretty close to the center line off off the center line outside. The wall, the west wall of the Pentagon, about in the middle, a little bit more to the north or to the left, but approximately in the middle of that wall, which was about three football fields long, about 900 feet long. The official story says that A757, claims, of course, Flight 77, hit in Wedge One, which is the half of the left wall of the west wall to the right or to the south. However, that's not where the plane debris is. The plane debris is on, around, and between the uh, far side of the heliport, which of course is a big piece of asphalt or concrete with a big letter H in white on it. Um, that's where the debris is. It's around the heliport, around the helipad of the heliport, and um, uh, even in front of the heliport firehouse, which is even further to the left or the north. Also, in behind the smoke curtain I detail the evidence from eyewitnesses and multiple stopped clocks that were stopped by whatever the actual violent event was at the Pentagon. Those clocks are stopped. April Gallup's wristwatch was stopped by a massive inside the building explosion at 9.30. Her wristwatch, which she has kept, it's in her safe deposit box was stopped at 9.30. The official story alleged impact time of flight 77 wasn't until 9.37 and 46 seconds, almost eight minutes later. Also, the big fireball that you see in the famous five frames security camera videos, the two videotapes that were taken from security cameras outside uh, the Pentagon uh, on the grass outside, um, the, um, the, um, the time of that fireball we know uh, was at 9.32 and 30 seconds. Because that is when that massive explosion and fireball, which is captured in the five frames videos, five frame, famous five frame videos, uh, we know that it stopped. That that fireball and the pressure waves from it stopped the Pentagon uh, heliport firehouse clock, which is outside the building at 9.32 and 30 seconds, which is five minutes, over five minutes before flight 77 was anywhere close to Washington DC in the Pentagon. It was miles and miles and miles away at that time. So people need to understand that the official story at the Pentagon, which includes the claim that it was flight 77 to begin with, which includes the claim that there were five alleged hijackers out of the 19 on flight 77, which includes that it hit the building, which includes that it hit the building at almost 938, and which includes that it hit the building way to the right or the south of where the debris is, the plane wreckage is. All of that is false, and it is provably false. And you can see that for yourself. In well, the the,
0: one of the stunning things was, um, first of all, I I saw the wreckage of TWA Flight 800, and I can tell you there was not enough wreckage in that in that Pentagon, uh, you know, in that Pentagon disaster area. But also, pictures of the wreckage show that it it was like white painted. It was a white craft or something because it was white with stripes, right?
1: Well. Um, That's a little bit complicated. Um, There are many photographs which I can send you of parts of a plane, some of them pretty big, um, that appear to have uh, parts of the word American from American Airlines on the side. Uh, And uh, it's not clear that those are white. Um, They look like they're that kind of polished light blue, silvery light blue aluminum. So that's not white. However, there are multiple, multiple witnesses who say that the plane that approached the Pentagon um, earlier than the official story alleged impact time was in fact white. And I detail all of those eyewitness testimonies including their quotes and some um, some of the video clips of the witnesses themselves who say it was a white plane. Now it's possible on a sunny morning that uh, a plane that was actually painted like uh, flight 77 was um, was actually mistaken as a white plane but i don't think so
0: this is just incredible i mean what okay let's let's because we don't have infinite amounts of time let's talk about the culprits yeah who are the culprits if uh, here, here's my question when I talk to people is I say, because we're alleging here, okay, we're, if you had the power to extraordinarily render anybody in connection to in, an interrogation to get to the truth of 9 11, who would you extraordinarily render
1: and what would you ask them? You know, that's funny, I, I act, it actually occurred to me to uh, write an article called The Extraordinary Rendition of, of Richard Cheney. <laughs> uh, answering exactly that question partially. Um, but uh, first of all, um, luckily I, I don't have the power to do that. And if I did, I wouldn't use it, of course, but um, you're asking me to do this off the top of my head. But uh, the answer to that question is detailed, detailed, in Behind the Smoke Curtain. It's about two thirds of the way in and it's the section that is called Who Did It? And why I believe, but anyway, it's called Who Did It? So the bottom line answer to your question is basically um, the masterminds um, were the people uh, who uh, were the chief authors, if you will, of the uh, Project for New American Century Manifesto which was published, by the way, exactly a year before 9-11, September 11th, 2000. And that is the, I call it, that's my word, the manifesto that uh, calls for a a new Pearl Harbor. Okay, so it turns out, and then not far into behind the smoke curtain, you will see a segment uh, where I actually put up on the screen literally dozens and dozens and dozens of the signatories and participants of that PNAC manifesto and the research that went into it and the writing of the text, there were two categories. They were participants and signatories. The signatories were, were the principals and then they had basically people who signed onto it called participants. And that list literally are the individuals who once Bush and Cheney, once Bush, George W. Bush and Cheney Uh, Gained the White House that they put in all of the top positions in the military, the intelligence community, the Department of Justice, etc., who were not only in a position to, but had the access to and the motivation to plan, carry out and cover up the 9-11 attacks. So the first answer to your question are the top people behind the Project for New American Century Manifesto. And then going down uh, in more specifics. And again, all of the details and why and the evidence is in the section in my Behind the Smoke Curtain on YouTube called Who Did It? About two thirds of the way in just before the end. The person I would put at the top of the list, the two people I would put at the top of the list in terms of the actual operational carrying out, uh, including uh, cover up, security details, uh, letting, uh, you know, letting people in to do it, would be Larry Silverstein, who many people think he owned you know, all of the World Trade Center uh, buildings. No, he was only the owner of World Trade Center 7 outright, but he had leased shortly before 9-11 for 99 or 100 years or something, all of the other buildings in the complex, including the Twin Towers. So Larry Silverstein is number one. We can detail why I think so or no so later. So Larry Silverstein, number one. Number two, definitely. Um, I believe working hand in glove uh, with Larry Silverstein and the people working with him up in New York City was none other than Dove Zakon, uh, who was like something like the number four person at the Pentagon. He was the comptroller of the Pentagon, the chief financial officer of the Pentagon. But what matters about Dove Zakheim, many people already know about Larry Silverstein. What matters about Dove Zakheim is that in addition to his position at the Pentagon before, during, and for a while after 9-11, and he was He left the position. I believe he was kind of forced to resign or fired, one of the two, not long after 9-11, interestingly. But the whole time he was at the Pentagon, uh, before, during, and for a short time after 9-11, Dov Zakheim also was the CEO of Systems Planning Corporation. Why does that matter? It matters because Systems Planning Corporation, SPC, it's also known as, the Systems Planning Corporation was in the business of, and they had created, Um, a high technology software system that could take over remotely take over control of an aircraft and that could be used to as it were hijack the hijackers that was actually you show in your
0: in your presentation
1: behind
0: the smoke curtain you you actually show their ad you know their promo saying we can hijack the hijackers.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't believe that was their promo. Um, it could have been. <laughs> it could have been. I think it was uh, something done by a 9/11 uh, activist uh, about about oh, their- Well, it, it it's been- impression
0: I got when I was watching it was that they were that they were promoting the uh,
1: their services. By- I think what he did was he took clips from one of their video promos. In- oh as as embedded in his uh, his in his uh, yeah i was shocked when i saw it i have to say okay yeah. so so, so dub zackheim was the ceo of a corporation whose business was to to have a remote control software system that was able to basically hijack the hijackers on 9-11 swap the planes out and then remote control the swapped plane into the final targets and uh, in addition to that, uh, and you now have the sworn jurid affidavit of a man by the name of Gordon Ferry, which I've sent to you. Yes. And in that sworn jurid affidavit, Gordon Gordon Ferry, who worked for years with Dov Zakheim, before he was in that position that he had on 9-11 at the Pentagon, he had other high level positions with the Department of Defense. When Gordon Ferry worked with Dov Zakheim, Dov Zak. Zach- Dov Zackheim confided in him that his systems planning corporation had a secret airport, a secret airfield at Stewart Air Force Base. Now, that's extremely unknown information. But why is it important? Because the two World Trade Center planes, and this is public information. I believe it's even in the 9-11 Commission report, they basically crossed, you know, one above the other, going in uh, their different directions on the morning of 9-11, right over Stewart Air Force Base. (laughs) Okay. So um, also, and then what you need to add to that is that Dov Zakheim was, of course, uh, a Pentagon official, a very high-level Pentagon official. And all the evidence that I put forward in Behind the Smoke Curtain on YouTube is that the plane that was actually destroyed at the Pentagon on 9-11 was not Flight 77. I give the evidence for that. We can go into that a bit if you want here. But it wasn't Flight 77. Instead, it was one of Dove Zakheim's planes that were being used in an exercise at the Pentagon that morning of how the building, the people in the building would respond in case they were Uh, in case an airplane was heading towards the Pentagon. And to make that exercise as real as possible, they call it verisimilitude in the military exercise community, to make that uh, exercise or drill as realistic as possible, that Dove Zakheim's plane was actually used and physically approached the Pentagon, but was triggered by remote control to be destroyed just before it would have otherwise hit the wall which it didn't but that's why there isn't nearly enough plane debris and the plane debris that there is is 95 percent little tiny pieces they were actually called like confetti by the eyewitnesses who saw them and were there on the lawn with them and why does that matter because we already know that most everybody in the 9-11 truth movement already knows that there were these uh, exercises by NORAD, which is an Air Force Agency, up in New York, up in New York on the morning of 9-11 that were on the scenario or close to the scenario of the actual attacks and General Aberhard and others in their testimony to the 9-11 Commission actually want you to believe, and that's what they said there, that it was as a result of these exercises that the um the responders the norad responders out of rome new york norad headquarters in the northeast section of of norad called neads n-e-a-d-s that they didn't respond in time to stop those planes because they thought they were still in the drill so we know that there was a drill at the world trade center on 9-11 on a similar scenario to the actual attacks and now we have evidence that there was actually a drill using Dove Zakheim's Systems Planning Corporation remote-controlled plane that got remote-controlled destroyed before it would have otherwise hit the wall on the morning of 9-11 at the Pentagon as well. In other words, drills on the scenario of what, actually, of what the official story claims actually happened on 9-11, both in New York City at the World Trade Center and at the Pentagon. So when you say it's significant that um, they
0: flew over uh, Stewart Airport, why why is that significant? What is that? Well, look-
1: it, well, it's significant if the planes were swapped. So so let's go back. Let's go back to the to the Pentagon. I mean, I could go into some of the okay. details that are in behind the smoke curtain as to why. Uh, all you have, if you have evidence that it wasn't Flight 77 at the Pentagon. And we know there was a plane destroyed at the Pentagon. Yes, there was, Uh, but not Flight 77 by definition because Flight 77 left at 8.20 in the morning outside of Washington DC, went out West and the official story says it turned around and came back and smashed into the Pentagon. If it wasn't Flight 77 at the Pentagon, what plane was it? It was a different plane. And because flight 77, there's no evidence that it was flight 77 wreckage at the Pentagon. And so what happened to flight 77? It had to have been either crashed or it had to have landed somewhere else. And it's in flight, it's in behind the smoke curtain that the air traffic controllers, the FAA air traffic controllers at Indianapolis, Indianapolis Air Traffic Control Station on the morning of 9-11 actually saw on their video screens the blip for what was flight 77 that had left outside of Washington, DC, that it started going down, that it went down at least 6,000 feet before the transponder was turned off, and they did not pick it up again, and that they assumed that it had crashed and reported it officially to the Air Force that it had crashed. But I don't believe it crashed. There is another military uh, airstrip, not far from there. And I believe that was also a swap. Bottom line is the plane at the Pentagon was in flight 77. There had to have been either a crash or a landing. Of flight so 77. now the, the airplane debris was to the
0: left, right? right of that big hole where they said the plane went in that's correct way to the
1: left 120 feet at least so
0: what explains that big
1: hole well that's a good question um there are different possibilities but but first and foremost uh i marshal the evidence and behind the smoke curtain on youtube that it was not flight 77 and it was not any large plane okay that's number one uh number two um there are many different ways that you can have a hole in the wall. Um, behind the smoke curtain, uh, Marshals the uh, the photographic evidence that um, that the uh, the rebars of what is remaining of the columns um, around the alleged impact point of the official story that they're bowed outwards; they're not bowed inwards. So um, the clear inference is that there was an internal explosion Something uh, that caused some. that hole. And we know that there was a massive internal explosion, five minutes and 16 seconds before that, uh, around April Gallup's desk inside which too, about 120 to 150 feet further to the left or north, inside the wall, inside the wall. Now, in that case, it didn't create a hole. It wasn't as big an explosion. Uh, But we know there was there had already been over five minutes before another massive internal explosion inside the west wall of the Pentagon. And so why not uh, inside the official story alleged impact point? I mean, this is, I I really, I really
0: want people to watch your video because we're giving highlights and you can't go into all the details that that back up what you're saying, you know. Exactly. You all. So it's very, very hard to sort of, especially when people are so incredulous anyway. I mean, they can't. most people can't even wrap their minds around their, people within their own government uh, planning such a heinous thing. And PNAC, if 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 PNAC is the model, clearly it's because they wanted to get over there into the Middle East. I mean, they in in, in America's defenses in PNAC they talk about you know first we're going to get this uh, this country and then this country and this country in the Middle East. I mean, it's right. it's
1: really a plan that's still being carried out. Right. You know? And by the way, the uh, PNAC manifesto, as I call it, it was published exactly a year before 9-11 Also. In addition to a new Pearl Harbor, which did end up being the Pentagon attack itself per se on 9-11, exactly a year later. It also, the PNAC Manifesto also calls for um, developing biological weapons, which can be used um, to target particular ethnic groups.
0: And so that's where that that harkens back to the anthrax attacks right after 9-11, which also People, they were talking about, oh, it's got to be Saddam Hussein. We, you know, we should go after him. Exactly. But let me ask you something, because we're, we're coming, we're hitting the, you know, we only have a few more minutes. Barbara, aren't there people inside the government who know this and who aren't on
1: board with it? Yes, of course there are. Um, but you know what happens to them. Um, remember, remember what happened to Philip. What's his name?
0: <laughs> I'm blanking. I don't know who you're
1: talking about? Uh, I'm I'm the the uh, the guy who used to be um, a CIA drug pilot. Philip Marshall. Uh, Philip Marshall uh, was assassinated along with his two children and the family dog. Um, Uh, when he um, uh, was about to publish and had already had the draft of his third book on 9-11. He used to be the uh, co-pilot with Barry Seal, right? Um, Who knew George W. Bush personally. Um, And Philip Marshall, uh, uh, when he was assassinated along with his children and his dog here in California, um, they, Whoever did that uh, took his computer, uh, took the draft of his book, uh, and uh, that's what happens to people who have uh, too well, much of the story from the inside. I think these people need
0: to find each other, hold hands, and come forward. I agree with you. Because, you know, it's taking time people like you and other people. I mean, you have done such amazing work, years and years and years and years and years to peel back the layers. And, you know, I forgot to mention that you are a board member of the lawyers on the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And of course you're a premier researcher. And, you know, this is the only group that's actually trying to bring some of this evidence into court so that um, there can be further investigations. But really and truly the shortcut to that is those people inside the government at higher levels need to call each other. I'm sure they know who each other are. They need to hold hands and come forward because this, the nightmare is continuing on the back of of this huge crime. I mean, it's an international
1: You know, it's an international literally, crime. Literally, millions of people have died, and multiple millions have been displaced, both outside of their country's borders and within, yeah. because of the lie of 9/11. Three thousand people died on 9/11, but millions have died and been displaced because of the lie of 9/11. I do need to add a disclaimer here, and that is: yes, I'm on the board and an officer and a researcher for the Lawyers Committee for 9/11 Inquiry, but but I am not doing this interview on behalf of or um, right. for the lawyers committee as a private in- investigator.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, I wanna thank you so much, so much for coming on. And I wanna thank you for your work. You know, the nation one day will be very grateful to you, Barbara. Maybe not now, but. Sometime in the future. Well, I would say the same for you,
1: a brilliant researcher. <laughs> many topics I've gotten read both your book and
0: TWA eight hundred
1: is incredible. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank
0: you so much, Barbara.
1: All right. Thanks Thank for you for coming
0: Thank on. Bye
1: bye.
0: Bye bye.